Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. In today's episode, we're going to talk about how a shift towards online shopping, which was led in part by Amazon, has reshaped our country. I'm here with my colleague, Stacey Mitchell, the co-director of ILSR. And joining us is the award-winning journalist, Alec McGillis, whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and many other places. Alec has a new book out, which is called Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Welcome to the show, Alec. We're happy to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. Could you just tell us a little bit about this book and why did you decide to write it? So this this book has been in the works for a long time, and it's, it really goes back many years to my kind of upbringing in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, small city in Western Mass that's gone through a really hard time after it lost General Electric, and just becoming more and more worried about the huge gap, growing gap between places in America, places that all these towns and cities that really have been kind of left behind, even as you had these pockets, these other cities that were growing just more and more wealthy, more and more concentrated in their prosperity. And watching this happening as I was about you know 10 or 12 years ago out on, on the road a lot reporting as a political reporter for the Washington Post and going out to towns in Ohio or Wisconsin, all over the country, and then coming back to Washington and Metro Washington as it was becoming more and more intensely wealthy and kind of complacent in its wealth. And this is around the time of the Great Recession, 2009-10, when you could barely even see the Great Recession hitting in, in Metro Washington. And seeing this, this divide growing ever wider between, between, between places and being really bothered by it and really worried about it and also surprised that more people weren't talking about it. And then Trump gets elected in 16, which obviously had quite a lot to do with, with that issue of regional disparities and then I, then I decided I need to write about this. I need to write a big book about this. And then after quite a lot of thought, I decided to come at it from the lens of Amazon, using Amazon as the framework onto this problem. And that's, that's how I got going on it. You do this really on the ground reporting for the book. And so the book is reported from, I think it's about eight or 10 different places can you just talk about like one of the places that you spent some time and 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 what you saw there? Sure. I I did decide to zero in on a relatively small handful of places because I really wanted to be able to go deep deep into place places and and I settled on essentially two winter cities, winner take all cities being namely Seattle and Washington DC. And just as an aside, I actually picked Washington DC before it was chosen as HQ2 for Amazon, so that that was kind of serendipitous. But then the the kind of the left behind places that I uh, chose were various communities in Ohio, where I've spent a lot of time as a reporter, mostly in the Dayton area in Southwest Ohio, and then the small towns of Appalachian Ohio in the Southeast, and then and and then Baltimore. Baltimore is the other kind of left behind city, and Baltimore really is in a sense the the kind of heart of the book. The Baltimore-Washington divide is something that I've seen growing, you know, this last 20 years now I've lived in 
in either in the Baltimore, Washington area. And I've kind of gone back and forth between the two places. And it's just been so jarring to watch how wide the, the divide between these two cities that used to be much closer in sort of size and prosperity and have now just grown light years apart to the point where you cannot believe that it's just 40 miles. You go from one to the other and it's you feel almost a kind of vertigo because that the gap is just is, is so large. And 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 it was really watching that gap grow these last decade or two that that drove me more than anything to, to want to take on this 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 book. And but Baltimore itself is offers a very powerful story for the theme of Amazon and what's happening to the country, because Baltimore has now several large fulfillment warehouses. And one of them is the newer of, of them is located in this incredibly important place, which is namely a, a peninsula called Sparrows Point that's just on the sort of off the southeastern edge of the city, down on the water. And it was um, for many, for most of the last century, home to what was for time the largest steel plant in America. And in the world, in fact, about 30,000 workers at its peak, an entire company town of five or 6,000 people with a whole grid of streets and a downtown and the, the, the entire you know, company town landscape and just this enormous kind of skyline of, of, of industrial might down there in the water. And in a, in a place where once they got the unions in, in the, in the 40s and 50s, someone could make a really good living in the mill and thousands did. It was very dangerous work and very strenuous work, but it was also very purposeful and meaningful work with great camaraderie and, and great you know, longevity. People spent their whole careers there. It finally went out of business in the first decade of the century, bit by bit. And it, that mill and the entire town have, have now been wiped completely clear from this peninsula. It's just astonishing. You go down there and it's all gone. Although you, when your, your GPS still picks up the, the old street names, it's very eerie. If you're driving sort of on the, this, it's almost like a tundra. You're driving out there and, you're, and, and it still calls out A Street, B Street, C Street, but it's all gone. And, and in, in its place now are the warehouses. It's a big logistics hub. And Amazon's got the biggest one there. And, and I actually found a, a man who had worked for 30 years at, at Beth Steele, making those good wages, and who then, after, after it went under, ended up getting a job driving a forklift at Amazon, making a third of what he was making at, at Beth Steele, and leading a much less sort of purposeful existence on his job. And, and to me, that transformation of the place from this manufacturing where where people were making things and making good money while while making them and, and living a life of, of some real purpose and, and dignity to now in that exact same place, making a third as much, picking and packing things that have been made halfway around the world with almost no interactions with their coworkers. That to me is just such a telling shift. And, and it really kind of forms the, the kind of spiritual heart of the book. Can I ask why... Why Amazon? I mean, especially compared to how other tech companies maybe have had a hand in this change in the D.C. area, how does their influence differ from other powerful companies, either politically or just geographically, how they've reshaped the landscape? 
It's a very good question. I decided to I decided to come at this book with an Amazon frame for two reasons. One was that Amazon is a driver of this problem of regional inequality, regional divergence between winner-take-all winner cities and left-behind places, much in the same way as other tech giants. In, what's happening essentially right now is that as certain markets get more concentrated, so does regional wealth. So media um, used to have avenue kind of spread all of newspapers, TV, radio, getting along with with ad revenue in the places where they operated. Um, now, as as more and more ad revenue is absorbed by Google and Facebook, what is it now? Sixty percent or so of all ad revenue goes to those two companies. All that revenue essentially is kind of just sucked to the places, the place where they are, which is, which is the, in their case, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley. So you end up with this almost dystopian level of wealth and inequality in the Bay Area, while all these newspapers and, and other news media outlets around the country suffer mightily. And, and so, so that's, that's sort of how the economic concentration leads into this kind of regional disparity. Amazon, you see the same thing happening with Amazon and, and retail, you know, where all this retail business, retail revenue that used to be dispersed broadly around the country is now more and more drawn into this one company that is based in this one place. And so we end up with this just incredible wealth, hyper prosperity in, in Seattle and the, and the few other places where they've got their, their kind of white collar business. The, but the other reason I chose Amazon, in addition to its being a contributor to this problem, a driver of this problem, like the other tech giants, the reason I chose it and not those other companies is that it's just a useful thread to take one around the country because it's actually present all around the country in a way that the other tech giants are not. It's present in a very physical way, right? We have, you have, you have these the warehouses, more and more of them. You have the trucks that are just you know, ubiquitous to the point of it being eerie. Like I mean, the day that I sent off my book, I had a truck that pulled up outside for one neighbor just an hour ago. Another truck pulled up outside the other window for another neighbor. I mean, it's just it's constant, right? So there's this there's this ubiquity of the warehouses, the trucks, the data centers, just all the different physical manifestations of this company in the landscape in a way that the other tech giants lack. I mean, they're, they're more sort of in the ether. They're, they're, they're affecting their life in all sorts of other ways, but it's, a, it's less, less in the landscape. And so Amazon just offered more of a, an actual kind of physical thread to take you around the country. And the way I like to talk, describe it is that Amazon, this book is not so much about the company itself, but it's about what everything that falls within the shadow of the company, because this company actually does cast a shadow. It's that physical. One of the places that's so striking, I mean, in the book is Washington, D.C., the other end of the of the spectrum from Baltimore, from some of the places that you covered in Ohio. You know, Amazon's footprint is everywhere in D.C., both, both visibly but also invisibly. And that's a city, as you noted, has grown so much more wealthy. Do you think DC is starting to feel like a, I mean, is it, a, is it a company town at this point? Like talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of Amazon's influence there. 
it's extraordinary. I mean, you just can't overstate it. And I feel like this story has been 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 missed, to be honest. And I and 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 one reason it's maybe been missed, let's face it, is that the very good newspaper in the city, it's when the city, it's a city that still has a really really strong newspaper that could tell a story. But the newspaper is owned by Jeff Bezos, and and that does pose a very kind of basic existential problem. There, but the reason I chose Washington as my second kind of winner-take-all city alongside Seattle, even before HQ2 was cited there, is that is that it was already apparent just how much Amazon and Bezos were were taking over the town. He bought the newspaper. He then bought the you know by far the most valuable home in the city, a former museum that he's bought for twenty-three million dollars in cash, and then spent another twelve million to renovate and then to sort of a great salon kind of space where you could have big Catherine Graham style parties. The the company, of course, has hugely ramped up its lobbying, at least as much as the other tech giants in town. It, it also just has a massive presence now through its cloud operations, which AWS has been so aggressive in seeking government contracts, got the big CIA contract a few years ago, came very close to getting the big Pentagon contract, has a big convention there every year, the public sector sector conference, where you've just got thousands of people coming in to try to get the cloud business, the growing cloud business in government. And then on top of that, you, you get HQ2 with the company choosing choosing Arlington, Crystal City for the next headquarters, 25,000 jobs, just massive investment, you know, capped off with this, this crazy looking building. You end up with just this enormous presence. And yes, on the one hand, they're coming there partly because DC now is a very has a very highly educated workforce where you have a lot of the kinds of people that you can poach for jobs at HQ2, people working out in those tech contractors out on your way out to Dulles Airport and all those kind of glass boxes that you see when you're driving around the Beltway. So you've got that whole workforce there that you can draw off of for, for their next headquarters. But but let's face it, the other reason that they've that they chose Washington to build this enormous presence is that Washington is home to the federal government. And if you're a company as dominant as Amazon is now, you you have, in a sense, you have less to fear from other corporate rivals than you do from from possible intervention by the government. And the best way to, to head that off is just to be very big in Washington, not only for more sort of for the kind of cruder, cruder aspects of, of influence wielding, but just in kind of soft power ways, right? You're more likely to have a kind of complacent, benign notion of, of Amazon if the guy lives next door to you or is on the sidelines of your daughter's soccer game is, is an Amazon guy working down in Arlington who's, you know, seems like a nice enough guy, nothing, nothing yeah. much to worry about there. So that, that's what's happening in Washington. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a takeover of that city by this one company that really has not been fully appreciated yet. And the book really tried to, to capture that. One follow-up question on that. As a journalist, what do you think about the Washington Post? Do you think that they they pull their punches on Amazon? I've thought a lot about this, and I you know have to be careful how I how I think about it and talk about it because I I worked at the Washington Post myself for for five or six years, kind of before Amazon came to town, and I have you know many friends and they are still who work hard and and are very good at what they do, and and when they tell me that that they never have to worry about Bezos. Call, call, calling them and, and requesting or you know trying to 
quash a story, I believe them. And Mm -hmm. it's not really about that. It's about, it's about the stories you never even set out to do the sort of self-censoring that you do because it's just such a kind of existential problem that, that you are owned by this man. What I've noticed in, in particular ways is that the, that the, the paper is, is quite aggressive in doing stories about Amazon as a, as a business in Seattle, as a, they'll, they'll do stories about you know, counterfeit sales on the site or other, you know, other problems with Amazon, the business kind of technical stories, but the story of Amazon's power in Washington and its takeover of Washington, that is the story that it still hasn't really been told in full. And if there were another company that was doing this, this would be in the Washington Post wheelhouse. I and mean, this is what they live for. When I was at the paper, they were doing all sorts of stories about these huge contractors who were getting these massive contracts and maybe screwing up the contracts or wasting the money. And SCIC and these various big beltway bandit type type companies. And now we have this company that's operating on an even vaster scale and sort of wielding influence and and getting contracts in Washington and and now and now actually becoming the biggest private sector employer in Washington and and, and transforming an entire inner suburb of, of the city. And and that's just that's not being told. That story is not being told at the level that it needs to be told. We'll continue with our conversation in just a moment, but first we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to Building Local Power. I hope you're enjoying the show. And I hope that if you care about supporting the workers and small businesses impacted by Amazon, that you'll consider heading over to ilsr.org donate to help support our work. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. Now we can turn back to my conversation with Stacey Mitchell and Alec McGillis, who's the author of the new book, Fulfillment. So in the book, you write about how these these changes, I mean, this this widening divide between the, the winner and, and losing, winner cities, loser cities, has basically made some parts of our country incomprehensible to other parts of it. Can you talk about the consequences of that? It's, it really is one of the, you know, the reasons I've gotten so worried about, about these divides, because you just, you end up with these, these, these bubbles. I mean, they really are bubbles. And you then, and I, you, I, I realize just how bad the problem has gotten because I move between them a lot. I, I tend to sort of, I've spent all those years working in the kind of Washington media bubble, surrounded by all this prosperity and, and kind of complacency. And then I would go to these places, out to these places a lot for my work that were doing much, much worse. And, and you just, you see how you're unable to even talk about problems because they, the, because the, the, the issues manifest themselves so differently um, in, in different parts of the country. I mean, housing is the, is the best example. It's, it's just surreal to be in cities where the housing debate is all about high costs and affordability and whether one should build more supply or, or cap rents with you know, rent control, that whole debate about supply versus, versus limits. And then you go to other parts of the country where you just have, where the housing problem is the absolute, absolute reverse, where it's just a problem of, of depopulation and blight and abandonment. And I, I find it deeply frustrating because in the, in fact, the, pro- the problem in both places would be partially ameliorated if we had less inequality, regional inequality to begin with. We would have 
far less extreme affordability problem and housing crisis in our winner-take-all cities if we did not have as much wealth concentrated in them. But we don't we don't think about it that way. We don't sort of we're we're in our one bubble, and we're not thinking about what's happening over here and how how much better off we'd be if 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 there was just more of a balance across the board. But then but then the most extreme most or clearest example, of course, of of this incomprehensibility to each other is what's happened in our politics in our electoral politics these last few years, where you end you you end up with such extreme divergence that the person in the other place does become an utter stranger to you. And it's, and it, it is a source of such, such resentment, you know, there's this whole debate about how much economic resentment, how much of a role it played in, in Trump's election in 2016 versus racism and xenophobia and, and misogyny. And the, where, where I've increasingly come down on this is that, is that they're absolutely, they're completely inextricably linked that that it's not one or the other. It's it's the fact of the one making people more vulnerable to the other and more likely to to be susceptible to the to the to, to the other. So it's the it's the growing economic resentment, seeing these other parts of the country that have become that have just sucked in so much of the nation's wealth, and that resentment then making one more more open to to really ugly appeals. So they're they're all they're all bound up together. Yeah, I think that's so true. I find I, I'm I, I it's hard to wrestle with. You know, the Democratic Party has has traditionally been the party, uh, at least in the last hundred years, of economic justice. But many of the winter cities that are really prospering are places that we think of as very progressive. You know, cities like Seattle and DC, which feature heavily in in your book. You know, they're some of the bluest places in the country. They're also increasingly some of the wealthiest places in the country. They're home to a lot of Democratic Party voters. But you write about how their progressivism and their extreme wealth are increasingly at odds with one another. And you had this line in the book about, you know, hyper-prosperity was not only creating the side effects of unaffordability and homelessness, but injecting a political poison into the winter cities. Can you talk about what you mean by that and and you know, sort of where this dynamic in in these prosperous places and, and supposedly progressive places is going? Yeah, it's a huge problem for the Democrats. I mean, you 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 really have now the party has become increasingly a party dominated by upper middle class, highly educated professionals, and they're living in in these winter cities. It's and there's a lot of kind of denial on the Democratic side about the extent to which this is happening, but it just is. If you look at the, at the numbers, it's, it's right there. And it's a really kind of an existential issue for the party because, because it has, of course, historically been, been the party of, of, of the underdog. And so what happens now if, if it is increasingly a party that is, identifies with and is dominated by very high earning, very, very highly educated professionals in, in these cities that are fabulously wealthy, and one of the awkward aspects of this is is what you see within some of these these cities themselves, where, and then the, the the line you quoted is comes from Seattle, where you've you've had, in the last couple of years, this really kind of tr- sad turn to a kind of ugliness in the local politics, politics that are in general, of course, very progressive as regards Donald Trump or you know any other kind of national national issue, but locally you've had this big debate around. The housing and homelessness crisis, 
and attempts to to address it partly by raising money to raising money in the form of higher taxes on Amazon and other big employers in, in Seattle to pay for more housing and homelessness services. And what happened in Seattle was that not only did Amazon manage to launch a very effective lobbying campaign to push back a, a new law that had passed to, to raise money, a new tax that had passed to raise money to address this, this terrible problem, but you also had a general turn within the, the electorate itself. It turned against these efforts, a fear that that raising money to, to address homelessness would a, you know, end up simply wasting wasting taxpayer dollars, waste, wasting these companies' dollars, and at the most kind of visceral, getting a, some kind of affordable housing built on your own block in your own neighborhood, a real kind of basic nimbyism reaction. And Amazon was was so successful in, in beating back this tax because it because it actually had quite a lot of allies in in a in the local allegedly progressive electorate people who just came to see any kind of government spending government attempts to to address this problem as as wasteful and doomed to fail it was almost a kind of a kind of a tea partyism at the local level a sort of liberal version of of that kind of anti-government strain and and it was it revealed something in the local quote progressive landscape that that a lot of people found very disconcerting and you see versions of that in in all sorts of different wealthy allegedly progressive blue cities around the country and it's it's not pretty and and it's I mean, the, the the big the big question away is is whether the democratic party can sustain itself as what is essentially becoming a coalition of it sounds a little bit harsh, but it's a coalition of people who, wealthy upper middle class people who buy a lot of stuff online, and then on the one hand, and then the people who package and deliver those things for them. That is that's increasingly what what the Democratic Party is becoming mm-hmm. a the the highly educated elite coupled with and that's a, most of course mostly white professional elite coupled with still you know very strong support among black and Hispanic voters, working class voters in these cities, that as we saw just last fall, that that coalition was already showed some signs of cracking. You saw Donald Trump of all people make some inroads with working class Hispanic voters and even so, even to a lesser degree with, with black men. But but that's the coalition that Democrats are now trying to hold together. It's it's very unwieldy. We'll we'll see if it can if it can sustain itself. That's so true. I would just if looking at the last year, quite literal. I mean, there's those of us who have been able to stay home and order things online and have them delivered to us. And then there's the people who are doing that delivering. It just really couldn't be. It might be harsh, but it couldn't be more obvious in my mind. And then I think just another piece of this, you took a really close look at the dynamic that exists now between local governments and Amazon, which in many cases seems to kind of result in these cities almost working on Amazon's behalf. Could you talk a little bit about that and and specifically the inside look that you got into this relationship in El Paso? Uh, yeah, I, I tried to do some real, I'm an investigative reporter, you know, at heart. And I saw it, the book does have quite a lot of digging and muckraking. I did a lot of public information requests and did, you know, kind of sleuth, sleuthing around the country and, and managed to get quite a lot of good material I thought pretty eye-opening material on the whole game of of Amazon 
trying to get tax credits and tax tax subsidies to open up these warehouses and data centers, places that are desperate for any kind of investment at all. And so I, I managed to get some nice little behind the curtain, pulling back the curtain on some of those communications between the company and and the towns around those those subsidies. And then I went down to, to El Paso to do a, a whole chapter on essentially the fight by a group of small business owners, in this case, office supply dealers, to to survive against the Amazon threat. And the Amazon threat in El Paso, like a lot of places, had a lot to do with complic- the, the, the complicity of, of local governments in making Amazon their, their main supplier for all, all manner of, of procurement, all manner of, of, of basic goods of government. And you have these office supply dealers in, in El Paso, you know, these are companies with 10 or 20 people at most typically who are, who've been getting by over the years by selling their goods, both to local businesses, you know, local accountants or lawyers and to local governments and school districts. And you then had Amazon suddenly coming to the picture and making an aggressive pitch to to the local governments and, and school districts to simply start buying from Amazon instead. Amazon directly saying, "Hey, look, if you you know why not why not just use us? You use us for everything else in your life, so why not just use us for your government procurement as well?" And oh, you know, don't worry about those local businesses that you've been buying from all these years. You can still buy from them online. You we'll just we'll just set them up on our site, and you can just make your one click from them there. It'll all just be much easier for everyone. Well, what's of course left out of that pitch, that happy picture, is that when it when when the the sale goes through Amazon as the as the middleman, Amazon takes a large cut, basically anywhere from. 15 to 15 to 30 percent, depending on how many services the local business feels that they need to buy from Amazon to be able to survive. And so I went down there and not only managed to to talk to the businesses about this pressure that they were under and this this fight that they've been waging, but also managed to get again to get a lot of the emails back and forth between Amazon and the El Paso city government. And I managed to actually slip into a session at the convention center in, Amazon, in El Paso, where some very high level Amazon executives were directly pressuring the local business owners to come onto the website to start selling through Amazon instead of directly to their local purchasers and just sort of got to see how that actually happens. And it was just, it was, it was a really remarkable moment to see them making this very kind of happy pitch to the business owners while withholding until the very last moment just how much it was going to cost them to come onto Amazon, basically only only conceding under duress, the duress of questioning from one one particular persistent local business owner that it was actually going to cost them quite a bit to start working within the Amazon empire. That chapter, uh, that whole scene just, I mean, just made my blood boil, you know, just the fact that this city not only sort of entering into this contract, but set up this whole event, you know, very much on Amazon's terms, just absolutely infuriated me. One of the things that I think, you know, and the, and the book is is just so excellent. It's really one of the best books I've read in a long time. And, and I hope everyone will pick up a copy because it's it's really deeply engaging and it's really told from the standpoint of people that you talk with across the country and these places and these events that, that, that you attend. And I, I think like it, what it also does really well is just 
show that these are these all of these things are are a product of of deliberate decision. I think one of the things we've been so kind of brainwashed into this idea that these forces are outside of our control and that growing problems in our economy are owed to, you know, globalization or, you know, these other things that that we can't control and that aren't the product of, of decisions. And I'm curious, on the one hand, I think there is some better recognition of the fact that, that there are decisions being made, but there's also, there's a lot of resignation out there and there's a lot of resignation in, in the book. And I'm curious, since you started this project, if you have, like, are you feeling more hopeful or less hopeful? What do you, what do you see on the horizon? Boy, um, well, for starters, I'm glad that you've identified that turn toward that, that I see a lot. And I'm really kind of frustrated by this, this notion that, well, these things are kind of unfortunate, but these are all just bit bigger structural forces. And what can you do about it? That was actually pretty much exactly the, the argument that I got back from Amazon itself. And I, of course, reached out to the company, spoke with them quite a lot. And their basic defense for all this boils down to, look, bigger things are happening in the economy. They happen for a long time. You know, the rise of, of, of online shopping was going to happen no matter what. We're just, we just happen to be the ones who were, were here at this moment. If it wasn't us, it'd be someone else. What that kind of talk overlooks is that there were specific things that the company's done, specific ways it's behaved, specific choices it's made that have made things as extreme as they are, whether it's on the tax avoidance game or where it's where to site its headquarters or how it treats its workers. These are none of these are all things in which the company does have agency. And I think it's important never to lose sight of that. I, w- I should also say that this is something that this is a realm where where all of us have agency. I do believe that all of us as as consumers and as citizens do have a say in this matter. And I find it depressing when when people just kind of throw up their hands and, and you know and, and make it all about the sort of the larger structural systemic context in which in which our world is is now. No, we still have choices about how we live our lives and where we not just where we shop, but sort of how in all the different manners of our life, sort of how much we engage with the world around us and and kind of resist the turn to the to the one-click life. And in that regard, this last year has been really, really tough to watch. It has gotten so much worse, that that sort of inward turn. The fact that we now, that people now had, in a sense, an excuse to to, to turn inward and to, to just make our, to live the one-click life. Before, that was something that was attached to some, you know, for at least some of us came with some sense of, not shame is probably too strong a word, but you know, some sense of stigma that we that we shouldn't be just buying everything online and and leaving our local communities bereft. But with the pandemic, it was it was a, a way of living that almost became attached to a sort of sort of self righteousness by doing everything online. We were just being doing the safe thing. We were flattening the curve, bending the curve. That we were just doing what the public health ex- experts told us to, and that was true to a certain extent for a certain time, period of time. But I do worry that even as we hopefully come out of this relatively soon, that those habits that were accelerated and exacerbated and intensified are going to stay with us to, to a great degree. That, that a whole, that we just have a really at risk of just of forgetting what it's like to, to actually be out in the world around us, to be 
connected to people. And, and, and perhaps we even find that when we go out, if we do venture out back into the world, that a lot of the places that we used to go to are actually gone now because we left them, we left them adrift and bereft for a year. And that, that's something great will, will have been lost. And I worry about that a lot. And I do think we all have a role to play in, in, in making sure that we re-engage. I do think that's a really good place to wrap up this conversation. But I will just say thank you so much for joining us today and reiterate that everyone should should check out this book. We will definitely have it linked in the show notes for this episode on our website. Yeah, I'll hand it, hand it back over to you guys. Yeah, thank you so much, Alec. It really is just a terrific piece of work, and I hope everyone picks up a copy. Thank you. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope to join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.